0: What's right for you isn't necessarily right for me. What's true for you isn't true for me. Who am I to judge? Who are you to judge? Ever heard those before? Maybe ever said those before? If you have those are actually an expression of a worldview that is common in our world today. It's called moral relativism. Big phrase, very simple concept, moral relativism. It just says that everyone has different opinions, convictions, and truths, all equally valid. Okay? Okay? Now, when I say a worldview, I'm talking about the way that we view reality, the way we see the world around us, the fundamental convictions that shape who we are, what we believe, how we live. And moral relativism is not only a pervasive worldview in our world, in every facet of our society and culture, it is also a highly appealing and attractive worldview because think about it this way. If you claim to possess truth or the truth in today's world, that is seen as intolerant, judgmental, closed-minded. And who in their right mind wants to be those things? So the solution is to adjust, to adopt the worldview du jour. To decide that truth and morality have to be relative. They have to be subjective, depending on the individual. Today, I want to give us a reality check. I want us to seriously consider these questions. Is moral relativism an acceptable view of the world? Does it align with reality and fact, truth as we know it? Is it okay to just live and let live? Or as Paul McCartney sings, to live and let die? Is it preferable, even obligatory, to tolerate everything? Never offend anyone. I want us to all consider whether this worldview has made its way into our own hearts, to our own minds, and what we should do about it if it has. And even if it hasn't personally impacted you as much as others, I encourage you to think deeply. I want to, in some, way, in some small way, equip you to respond to this worldview as a Christian, Because you will butt up against it all the time with friends and family members. And I want to give you confidence in what we believe, what you believe, what we say we believe is the truth about God and reality. Let's pray that that God would do these things in each of us today, shall we? Heavenly Father, we do pray that you would take your truth, And that you would plant it deep in us. That you would shape us and fashion us in your likeness. Not the likeness of those around us. Not the likeness of our world. Not the likeness of our parents or our siblings. But in your likeness. We pray for your grace. We pray for your spirit to come and speak truth into our lives now. Help us to be open to hearing from you, that our hearts would be soft to respond. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me begin with a a disclaimer. I don't want this message, or this whole series really, to be an excuse for us to go, we're right and everyone else is wrong. So there. I do not want to do that. I want to really engage the issues at hand, to engage the culture. Even if that means at times we have to go pretty deep on the mental, the intellectual side of things, which we'll do a bit of today. But I encourage you, if you have questions, if you have doubts, if you have objections, if you just have confusion about things, please write them down. I'd love to talk with you about them, even at, right after the service. I'll meet anyone with questions right over here in the library for a bit of a q and I don't want to ignore what's going on in your hearts and your minds. Now, if I were to ask you this, or if I were to tell you this, rather, ice cream tastes great, and bananas taste awful. Some of you might agree with me. Many of you would not. Who's right? Well, both sides would be right, right? Based on their tastes. Many of our preferences, our opinions about life, our tastes, are indeed relative. They're subjective, and that is okay. But is it the same thing when you transpose that idea To the realm of truth or morality. This is what moral relativism attempts to do to make matters of truth and morality more like ice cream. Alright? It says that ethics and right and wrong and truth are subject to an individual's opinions. Now most people here in Ottawa would tell you that they aren't sure whether truth actually exists. And if it does exist, then it may not be, it must not be self-evident or knowable. Therefore, we have to decide what is right and wrong or true and false for ourselves. Right now, generally, many people are not deciding things of that gravity by themselves. Most are just going along with the stream and consensus of the culture around them. And they claim that society really as a whole is what has the authority here. The society as a whole should really determine what is right and wrong. But even in that case with society, truth is still relative just based on each individual culture. Now, going through the eight key questions I've given you for worldviews, uh, this and this is each each of these eight questions. I believe each worldview will attempt to answer. The first one is just what underlies reality. So, what is the foundation of this worldview? However, right away, a moral relativist would say this is the wrong question to ask. At the least. Moral relativism would say that we are asking the questions in the wrong order. Right? They'd say the first question we should ask is not what underlies reality. The first question we should ask is how can we know? How can we know? But if we, if we forced an answer to this question, what underlies reality, the answer would most of the time be, I don't know. Okay, I don't know. They would plead ignorance or agnosticism. And some relativists would try to argue differently. Uh, they would say that there is nothing underlying reality or that the natural cosmos or random chance or human reason is the foundation of reality. But ultimately, if you think about this, ultimately, if we believe in moral relativism, I believe we end up as the foundation of our worldview. We ourselves are our own foundation. As Steve Wilkins and Mark Sanford say, our opinions become the final court of appeal because while we cannot be certain of any moral realities, we can be sure of our preferences. Number two, what is real? So what are moral relativism's convictions about external reality? Well, your convictions really could vary on everything from God to garbage disposal. You have different opinions on everything. The the best short answer is that the convictions for moral relativism are individually determined, individually self-determined. Okay? Number three, who are we? Our identity. This isn't especially an emphasized question for relativism. You just might say that we're on our own here. Okay? Again, self-determined. Who are you? You tell me got to figure that out for yourself. Question number four is, of course, the huge one for moral relativism. What is true? Where do we get knowledge, and how do we know true knowledge? The answer is usually that we can't. Absolute truth is unknowable. Moral relativism denies any unified, transcendent body of truth out there. Therefore, any lesser truths that we have in our world must be subjective to the individual. James Sire describes this way of thinking. He says, no one's story is truer than anyone else's story. Does the story work? That is, does it satisfy the teller? Does it get you what you want? Say, a sense of belonging, a peace with yourself, a hope for the future, a way to order your life. That's all one could ask. I don't know if you've read the book or watched the movie, The Life of Pi. This story is of an Indian boy named Pi, who is set to immigrate to Canada with his family. Then they board a ship, and then they're shipwrecked in the Pacific Ocean. And Pi finds himself on a lifeboat along with four very odd companions, a hyena, an orangutan, a zebra, and a tiger. And he ends up surviving on this lifeboat for about seven months, before washing ashore in Mexico. Over this time, over the seven months, the, the zebra, the hyena, and orangutan die, and Pi is able to tame the tiger. He also learns to, to fish, to collect water, to survive heat and storms and starvation. But the end of the story, as he comes to Mexico, he, it has a huge twist on things. Once he reaches Mexico, Pai is being interrogated how he was able to survive this trip across the Pacific Ocean. With good reason, right? The the other people are very skeptical. They find Pai's story just far-fetched. So, Pai then blurts out an alternative story to his original story. He says that his companions on the boat were not actually animals, they were people. And that the other three people other than him died horrific deaths even at each other's hands. Pai then says, you can't prove which story is true and which is not. You must take my word for it. So tell me, since it makes no factual difference to you and you can't prove the question either way, which story do you prefer? Which is the better story, the story with animals or the story without animals? People talking to him are stunned by this. Wide-eyed. Well, the story with the animals is the better story. To which Pi responds, Thank you. And so it is with God. Do you get his point? Follow along. Whichever story you prefer is the story that is true. For each individual. Now, maybe you can spot the flaws in Pai's reasoning. There are definitely flaws. But this is how many people in our world see reality in general and truth in particular. Number five, what is good? Or what is morally right and wrong? Good and evil. It depends. Relative, again. Since no objective truth is knowable, neither are any objective morals. It follows from the previous. The, the logical clue, conclusion to this stance, though, on morality, is that anything goes. That's where it will automatically... Of course, most people would deny this. They'd flat-out deny that anything goes. No, that is not true for us. They'd say that there are culturally determined morals which we ought to follow. But what that does is that just pushes back the moral authority from the individual to the group. And logically, a group can still set anything as moral right or wrong. Take the Nazis as an extreme example. Again, we're still left with anything goes. Number six what is important? What are the chief values of moral relativism? That would be things like tolerance, kindness, freedom, acceptance, or coexistence. And if these things are the most important things in life, then what is wrong with the world is their absence. What's wrong? The fallenness in the world we see. It is whenever we have people that are going against These values, usually by propositioning a truth claim of some kind. You may hear truth claims described as all being power grabs. Objective truth is seen as cold, harsh, archaic, even oppressive. It's just one interpretive community imposing its limited perspective on another community. If you ever wondered why our world is, recoils so much against the claims of knowing truth, this is why. Okay? Because believing that you know the truth is, that others don't is not just some innocent difference of belief. It's dangerous power mongering. A potentially violent and offensive plague to be eradicated. It all fits in the worldview. And so, what can be done? How can a moral relativist find their version of salvation? It's by promoting, pursuing, and potentially achieving a peaceful tolerance of all people. Which then allows every person or society to pursue the same freedom to express their own individual truth in a pluralistic world. Our culture, this is, again, you wonder why our culture values tolerance so much. It's because salvation is found in tolerance. Now, we Christians may not think this worldview has affected us very much. But I doubt that we can be as immersed in it as we are and not be impacted. Maybe you've been in a a small group Bible study at some point and Someone has asked the question, what does this verse or this passage mean? And someone has responded, well, what it means to me is, did you catch the shift there? What it means to me? We say that we believe in truth, but we often treat it like opinion." There are many books and preachers and churches today diminishing their view of truth, trying to sideline it. Some Christians recoil from claims of truth or exclusivity. You may be one of them. Some prefer to pose question after question after question, never answering any of them. Maybe you have bought into the lie that evangelism in our world is pointless or futile. Because people have their own truths, so they must not want to hear about yours. We value their perceived preferences over their eternal destinies. Now, do you think that could be because we live in a culture that equates preference with truth and truth with preference? Uh, So I don't want to be naive here. Many of you have maybe outright adopted these views as your own. So I want to challenge you today to really think, to really consider whether you should see things this way. I I also want to look at this from another angle today. Not all of us have necessarily let this worldview affect our own hearts. But I wonder if we have had a role to play in the rise of this worldview in the first place. Because moral relativism really is a reactionary worldview. It's reacting against something else in society. And what it's often reacting to is a cold faith. A, uh, something that thumps truth without grace or love. Legalism and hypocrisy are some of the primary causes of anything-goes relativism. People are told, in not-so-loving ways, how they ought to live. And they react to that by saying, Well, truth is relative, and who are you to judge? The moral? We must be extremely careful about how... We present truth. More on that later. Now, when we talk about moral relativism and what it values, and I talk about several of those values that they have, tolerance, kindness, peace, freedom, most of those are really good things, right? And so we, should, we absolutely should strive to live kindly and peacefully, and yes, even tolerantly. It's on the right track there. So where does moral relativism go wrong? Why would I say that moral relativism is an inadequate, an unsatisfying, or even false worldview? I think one term could sum it up. It is self-defeating. It is self-defeating. It defeats itself. And that's even before we see anything from the truth of Scripture. Here's the first point I have for you. Moral relativism undermines itself in multiple ways. Believing morality is relative or subjective fails itself. It defeats itself on a variety of fronts. Moral relativism undermines itself in multiple ways. Cornelius Van Til pictured moral relativist way of thinking this way. He pictured a a man made of water in an infinitely extended and bottomless ocean of water who, desiring to get out of water, makes a ladder of water, then sets his ladder on and against the water and attempts to climb out of the water. Francis Schaeffer famously described it as having both feet planted firmly in midair. So why would I say this? Why would I say that moral relativism is self-defeating? Let's consider three ways. First, it is intellectually incoherent. You don't need a Bible to prove this. You just need moral relativism's beliefs themselves. If you really stop and think about things, it is impossible to be consistently relativistic without completely shooting your own worldview in the foot. For some examples, you may have heard this kind of argument before. Someone says, there are no absolute truths. Well, are you absolutely sure about that? Is that an absolute truth? Or, you cannot make exclusive truth claims. That's an exclusive truth claim. Or, we can't know any universal moral standards. How do you know that? Right? Or, everyone's perspective is, is culturally influenced. Yes, and so is that perspective. It carried to its conclusion, moral relativism is self-contradictorily absurd. And relativists end up being just as restricted by culture and exclusive as anyone else. Since they claim that their view describes reality as it really is. James Sire says, The idea that we have no access to reality, that there are no facts, no truths of the matter, and that we can only tell stories about it, is self-referentially incoherent. Put crudely, this idea cannot account for itself itself. For it tells us something that on its own account we can't know. Now some would see this kind of argument, this line of argument, as nothing but a parlor trick. Cheap way to turn it back on someone. But you still can't escape the argument. Either your worldview makes logical, coherent sense, or it doesn't. And applying a worldview's own standard of truth to itself is a valid way to test its value. That's what we're doing with that. Further, moral relativism claims that to be all about good virtues like kindness and peace and tolerance, but what they have done as they do that is they have completely removed any basis or foundation for those things altogether. If I were to tell you on the negative side of things, okay? On the negative side, if I were to tell you, I approve of murder, rape, and child abuse. In fact, I do all those things. What would you say? Whoa, wait, what? Those are absolutely wrong. Why, well, yes, they are. And I would, if I believed these things, if I stood for those, if I, if I did those things, I would fully deserve to be brought to justice. But moral relativism has removed the ability to even judge those things as right or wrong. Now, some would argue, like I said earlier, some would go back a level and say, well, our society has determined that these things are wrong. And so uh, they say that our society determines that that is wrong for you, so you still can be judged based on that standard. Okay, but what if I'm from a society where these things are acceptable, even good? What, where I'm from, if someone gets in my way, I can off them. I can take any woman I want, and I can beat the kids that come from them. You go, that doesn't make it right? Precisely my point. But who are you to judge? From the positive side, what determines, in moral relativism, what determines that kindness and peace and justice and tolerance are good things that should be pursued? Wilkins and Sanford say this, It is hard to know how one can demand tolerance unless we believe that tolerance is a moral requirement for everyone. In other words, this makes tolerance a moral absolute. But doesn't relativism reject moral absolutes? On the other hand, to require tolerance on the basis of individual preference appears to be the epitome of intolerance. The very goodness of the ideas that make moral relativism attractive to many, peace, humility, freedom, and tolerance, creates a problem for moral relativism. Thus, moral relativism, catch this, attempts to ground itself in the very thing it claims to reject. Now you might say here, okay, so so moral relativism doesn't make intellectual sense when you stop and think about it. But that hasn't stopped people, right? That hasn't stopped people from having this worldview, from living with this worldview. And you're right. Many people seem very happy living with this inconsistency or maybe just this ignorance. Why is this? Why are people happy with that inconsistency? Maybe it's because we're happy to live under a delusion if that delusion gives us authority to live however we want. It's a theory, at least. But I'd also challenge the notion that, that anyone actually successfully lives as a moral relativist. See, not only is it incoherent in our minds, it is also dissonant with our actions. Here's the second point here, is that it is practically unlivable. You can't live it out. Many people claim to be moral relativists, but I've never met anyone who truly lives as one. If I went outside after church and keyed your car, you would not be much of a relativist in that moment. If I stole your phone or your wallet or your purse or, or maybe I stole your identity, you'd rightly see that as wrong. Right? If someone shot your dog or your cat as some sadistic joke, you would not go, well, who am I to judge? If someone sexually harassed you at work, you wouldn't go to each their own. Nancy Percy says this. Many people today claim to be moral relativists, arguing that there is no universal, timeless moral law. Yet, they are likely to turn around and insist that acts of racism or abuse are wrong. Not just unpleasant or personally offensive, but genuinely wrong. And they will protest vigorously if they themselves are cheated or violated in any way. Indeed, people cannot function for even a few hours without making moral evaluations. He shouldn't say that. She is so mean. No one acts like morality is just a matter of opinion when they are a victim of a wrong. No one actually tolerates everything. So what does this mean? It means that everyone still lives as though truth and morality exist. Even if the question really is is not whether they exist, the question is just where we draw the line between opinion and truth. Even if we won't admit it, we live knowing that there have to be rights and wrongs. If you would, please finally open your Bibles... (laughs) to Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2. If you're using one of the Bibles in front of you, that's on page 940. This is very backed up in Scripture. Romans chapter 2, start in verse 12. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. While their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Do you get what the Apostle Paul is saying in these verses? He's saying that... Even for people who don't know the law of God, they don't know what God requires, they still often live according to the principles that are in the law. Right? They, they feel the need to do good, to, to love each other, and they feel guilty when they harm someone else. And so, verse 15, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts, accuse or even excuse them. Now, these verses imply a few key things for us here. First of all, good news for all of us. Okay, No matter how polluted our hearts have become or how polluted they are, God has left us a witness to point to himself. He wrote, it says, or inscribed or engraved his law inside of us, on our hearts. Secondly, even if we excuse ourselves, say, you know, that doesn't apply to me. Even if we excuse ourselves, that doesn't mean we're actually excused. It says that our conflicting thoughts accuse us or excuse us. But, you notice verse 16, a true and impartial judgment is coming. On that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Thirdly, we need to stop ignoring the twinges of our consciences. When we do, we may just be hardening our hearts, quenching the Spirit, searing our conscience. So it doesn't recognize these things anymore. Fourthly, when we're convicted of sin, sin in our hearts, we must repent. Have to repent. Did you notice how Paul says God will judge us? He says on verse 16, On that day when, according to my gospel... God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. According to the gospel or the good news of Jesus Christ. So, we are judged according to whether or not we have believed in Jesus' death and resurrection. We have repented based on that. That he paid for our sins, given us new life. It all rides on that. We judged according to that. you know what? You can live under that gospel. It's livable. In fact, it's the only way to truly live, both now and in eternity. Moral relativism can't do that. It doesn't fit the facts of reality, intellectually. It does not fit the laws of logic. Neither does it fit with the way we live. But the third way moral relativism undermines itself, maybe the most important of all for you, because, maybe, because most people aren't relativists for intellectual or practical reasons. They don't get there because of those things. They don't think through. They don't live it out. They have adot- most people are relativists because of emotional reasons. Right? They, they've adopted or assumed relativism because it sounds nicer than the alternatives. Seems inoffensive, enlightened, peaceful, loving. However, what moral relativism actually leads to is the diametric opposite of those things. It is emotionally unfulfilling. I love how Wilkins and Sanford explain this. They say, Relativism is a kinder and gentler type of ethics only if there is no objective moral truth. If all moral ideas are equal, then we have no business telling others they are wrong. However, if moral truth has an objective reality and makes a real difference in one quality of life, it would not be nice to let people wreck their lives by acting on error. In short, then, we cannot decide whether moral relativism is nicer than moral objectivism until we determine which is true. And to determine whether or not moral relativism is true, consider the previous points. See that it is an internally inconsistent, illogical, and impractical world. You cannot be true. If, it, if it's not true, lying to people to give them a sense of peace is not kind. For anyone here who may have assumed some of this worldview, let me ask you. Do you really want to believe in a reality that undercuts and undermines itself? Do you really want to see the world in a way that ultimately provides no basis for fairness or justice in this world? Do you really want to live in a world which can neither account for nor demand love or peace? Do you really want to be unable to say that? suicide bombers or child molesters are wrong. Do you really want no stable, reliable guidance in your life as to what is right and wrong? I'm appealing to your emotions because your emotions are probably what got you where you are. Moral relativism is emotionally bankrupt. It cannot deliver on what it promises to do. It's rejected. Jesus offers a better way. A better world. A better way to see the world. Deep down inside of us, I believe that we all have a desire to know truth about reality. Otherwise, I don't think any of you would ever come and listen to me talk. Not to mention watch the news, surf the web, read books, or get educated. We all are on truth quests, searching for meaning and purpose and reality. We know we need it. I believe this is the way that God made us. Deep down inside, here's my final point for today. We need truth. We need truth which is rooted in both earthly and transcendent reality. I'll get into what that means in a minute. But we need truth in our lives, which we can know and follow and live by. And we need this truth to be rooted both in our present world, what we can see and touch and smell and taste and reason about, and outside of our world, above ourselves. Now, This does not mean that we can see or grasp all truth. Obviously, we can't. We are limited, finite beings. But we still need truth. And I believe that we can know some amount of real truth. Additionally, I think there's very good reason to believe that this truth can be found in Jesus. If you would flip over with me to John chapter 18. John 18, that's page 904 in the Pew Bibles. This is Jesus on trial, being questioned by the governor Pilate right before his death. And Pilate was curious about some of the accusations that were wielded against Jesus. Read from verse 33. So Pilate entered the headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, My servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. So, just pause. Jesus and his kingdom are far out from outside of our world. If Jesus' kingdom wasn't of this world, what world is it from? Well, it's from a heavenly realm, right? A different, a different dimension of reality. So he is of a transcendent nature, his kingdom is of a transcendent nature, It is truth outside and above our world. And yet, he physically entered our world and put a face to truth. Continue in verse 37. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king for this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? Jesus says, This is the reason, this is even why he came To earth. Why he left heaven, came to earth, was to testify to the truth about reality. So the truth of Jesus is not only some heavenly supernatural truth, though it is that, it is also a flesh and bones, word made flesh, visible, tangible, historical truth. If it's the facts of history. It makes sense of our senses, of our reason, of our experiences, and yet it also transcends them. It comes from above them. Therefore, we hear God in Scripture saying over and over again, this is truth, listen, hear. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Obey. Verse 37, again, Jesus says, Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Hundreds of times, Jesus says... Truly I say to you, or truly, truly, verily, verily I say to you, Isaiah forty-five, nineteen, we hear God say, I the Lord speak the truth. I do, I declare what is right. There's your truth and your morality for you. The prophets cry out continually, thus says the Lord, the God of truth. True now, by the way, truths are only absolute, inasmuch as they are rooted in the nature and character of God. Jesus declared about himself, though, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus prayed for his followers in Gethsemane. Father, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me from heaven into the world, so I have sent them into the world. So like he brought truth into the world, we are to do the same. We have been entrusted with the message of truth, to protect it and to proclaim it. And, of course, to obey it. As Jesus said, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Did you catch that? The truth will set you free free. Which means truth, as it is meant to be, is not restrictive or oppressive or cold. It is free. Life-giving. Truth is what brings true salvation into the world. If we I think if we honestly evaluated ourselves, evaluated our surroundings, just took some time to think about this, we would realize how arrogant a claim it is to be our own author and arbiter of truth. How impossible it is, even. Nancy Percy says this, The finite, that's us, cannot reach the infinite. So, the only way it is possible to know eternal truth is if God has communicated to the human race, giving his own transcendent perspective. This is why we needed to be transcendent. And that's exactly the earth shaking claim that Christianity makes that scripture is communication from God, giving us information about himself, the cosmos, and history. We so take this for granted that we have been granted a God's eye. You. Not because we've earned it. Not because we've discovered it ourselves. But because of God's grace. This should utterly humble those of us who claim to have seen any truth. You haven't discovered anything. You haven't found anything. You know the truth is because God gave it to you. This should never in a million years make us arrogant or superior to other people. As stewards of the truth, as messengers of the truth, we should respond, I believe, to moral relativism around us. And how we do so, and as we do so, humility is the first thing I'd say we must have. Because sometimes we act as though we know all truth. As if we know like God knows. We don't. We are not God. We don't know everything. Really, our God's eye view is really a God's eye glance. It is only because of his grace that we know anything at all. So act like that. Second, we need to respond to moral relativism with honesty. The worst thing we could do is to shy away from the truth. Be confident in it. There are excellent reasons to believe that what we believe is true. I'd love to talk with you if you have doubts about that. But if we truly have what Jesus calls the words of life, the words of life from the mouth of God, we've got to share them. To do otherwise would be the most unloving thing we could ever do. Speaking of love, That's the third way I believe we should respond to moral relativism. Truth always needs to be intertwined with love. Always. Speak the truth with love. In other words, don't be a jerk when you talk about your convictions. (laughs) Always remember the person behind the argument or the debate. If we don't, we'll just keep perpetuating the same tragic reputation we've earned and ironically just drive more people away from the truth that can free them. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. As love in truth. So if you have believed the lie we can make our own truths. I urge you, listen to God today. Listen to Him. If you have allowed your heart to be swayed by our culture's worldview at all, listen to God. And if your heart needs to be reawakened to how glorious God's truth is, listen to him. Because everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Jesus said that. If you know where to hear him, he is still speaking. Even today. So he's saying, The body they may kill, God's truth is with us still, and his kingdom is forever. Let's pray. God, I pray right now for. Any heart here that is resistant to you. It raises objections and red flags in their minds. Those are all fine. You can respond to those, but God, as those things are raised, we, I pray that you would convict them of their sin. That you would drive them to respond to you today. That they would see your grace, your mercy that is available to us in Christ. May all of us never be arrogant in this. May we never become prideful. May we never respond to others with anger or hatred or harshness. May we respond with humility and honesty and love. For your good, you're so good to us. We thank you, in Jesus' name, amen.